Well, happy 4th of July to everyone out there who listens to this show. I hope you all enjoyed this past weekend leading up to tomorrow's momentous holiday, celebrating the anniversary of American independence. I hope you enjoyed your barbecue, and while you did, I hope you also took the time to remember the people who risked so very much during that time. They risked their freedom, their property, their very lives, because they were colonists under the British government, and what they were advocating was, in the eye of King George, total unadulterated rebellion, and rebels are usually hung. And King George did vow to track down every rebel and bring them to justice and hang them. So when they declared their independence, they did so at the cost of their very lives and the lives of their families. They were the greatest generation. They were brilliant men, and we should remember them on that day before we sit down to indulge in the partying and the festivities. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either subscribe to the Podbean app by downloading that app in the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, and you could subscribe that way, leave reviews, leave comments. Or you can simply use your native podcast aggregator app. It will be the Google Podcast app if you have an Android, or the native uh, iPhone podcast aggregator app if you use Apple. Either way, you can search out those respective stores, the iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store for the Jamie Dury Show, and subscribe. Whichever way you choose to subscribe and listen, either through your native app or through Podbean, You'll be able to leave comments and reviews, and we always desperately can use more of both. We make an effort to give you a good show. So please take a few moments to give us a five-star review and rating, even if it's just a couple of sentences, but give us a five-star rating and a couple of sentences how you like the show. Uh, Share the show with your friends, recommend us to friends, and the show will grow. But the more reviews we get, the show will definitely pop up higher in search rankings when people search either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store or whatever, looking for conservative news content, we will come up higher in the search ranking because you took the time to give us a review and perhaps shared the show with uh, friends. So I was thinking about what would be an appropriate subject to do today, the day before the 4th of July. And rather than give an historical perspective, uh, so many do, I may speak a little about that, as I did in the beginning. But what I really want to do is point out, by way of demonstration, how brilliant the Founding Fathers were when they came up with this unique system of government. Now, the British did very well spreading the idea of parliamentary government throughout the world. But parliamentary government runs and works very differently than the system of government we have here. Um, In the parliamentary system, uh, people who use it, they basically vote for their representatives in parliament, and then whoever gets a majority forms a coalition government, and uh, a member of that party is selected as the new prime minister. And the prime minister in Great Britain has a five-year term of office, and then they 
have to call for elections at least once every five years, but they don't have to wait five years. So if they're called for elections and they're elected and now it's uh, three years in or four years in and they're doing really well because everything is uh, lining up for them in terms of their policies, the economy, they call for an election then and they know they got another five-year run. But eventually uh, they all have to leave. We do things very differently here. We vote for our congressional representatives, and we vote for our chief executive. And as long as we follow the rules that were set by the founding fathers for very, very specific and very, very bona fide reasons, we will do very, very well. We've already gotten away from that in the early 1900s. What most people don't realize is that prior to that time, we did not vote for our U.S. senators. We were never intended to vote for our U.S. senators. Now, why is that? Well, for the very same reason that every state gets two senators, even though a state like California has 33 million people and a state like Vermont has 450,000 people, but they get the same number of representatives. Now, in the House of Representatives, a very, very different story. A state like California may get 40-some-odd congressional representatives, congressmen, congresswomen. A place like Vermont will only get a couple because the House of Representatives is the people's house. It's based on population so that each state gets a larger say if they have more people living in it. But the senators are not supposed to represent the people. That's why the people never elected them. The senators were supposed to represent the individual states as sovereign entities. And since each state as a sovereign entity is on equal footing with every other state, irrespective of population, they all get the same number of senators. Once we started voting for our senators, we, fe- we effectively uh, rendered moot the necessity of having senators. Because originally, senators were not elected, they were selected by the representatives of the state. In other words, if you lived in the state of New York or New Jersey or wherever, the politicians that you vote for in the state legislature, like in New York State where I live here, it would be the, the, uh, the Assembly and the Senate, those politicians would select the senators, because they're representing the state government. So in a way, you had an indirect voice in selecting senators, because if you wanted um, more conservative senators, I guess you voted for more conservative state government. If you wanted more liberal senators, you voted for more liberal state government. But either way, we undermined everything when we screwed that up and started voting for senators, because now you have relics and ideologues and corrupt thieves like Charles Schumer Uh, outstaying his usefulness in the New York State Senate. And there's so many others we can point to, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, that really should be long since retired and removed. But the other thing that the Founding Fathers did, which nobody's been able to screw up yet, or they're trying, is the judiciary. Now, under the Constitution, only one federal court must be maintained. Congress could abolish all other federal courts if they wanted to by an act of Congress because 
They were created by Congress. But the United States Supreme Court was the only court that was mandated to exist by the U.S. Constitution. And it is the focus, or should I say, some monumentous decisions that they handed down last week will be the focus of today's podcast. I'm going to get to them in due course, but just a little bit before we get to that. Now, the very fact that the United States Constitution and the Founding Fathers mandated the existence of the Supreme Court is significant. Because the Supreme Court, if nothing else, was supposed to be the court of last resort, the final arbiter of disputes between the states. And that is why Justice Sam Alito was so, so very correct when he pointed out during the 2020 election or the aftermath of the 2020 election, when there were allegations of corruption and a coalition of states that had voted for Donald Trump complained about the actions in other states, claiming that if, if in fact, these allegations were true, that phantom ballots were used to achieve victory and uh, votes were flipped and so forth and so on, it would have the effect of diluting the legitimate votes that took place in their states. Now, that seemed like a perfectly reasonable argument. Now, Justice Alito was very clear. He did not say whether the argument would win or prevail before the court, but he was 100% correct when he asserted, we cannot possibly turn to these states and say that they don't have standing to bring this claim. They, of course, have standing. Where else in the federal system can the states go for resolution of arguments between them? They have to go to the United States Supreme Court. He said, I'm, I'm not saying we have to find in favor of these states, but we must at least grant a hearing and hear what they have to say. But it was politically charged and nobody did it. When the judiciary was first formulated, no one envisioned it would begin to have the power that it had. In some cases, in our history, that power has exceeded what the Founding Fathers envisioned, to the point where it became a super legislature in many periods of our country, where passing things that could never be forced down to throw the American public by judicial fiat. And it's always been the argument among us conservative and con strict constructionists that we should stick to the original text, not be given to legislating from the bench and all powers not specifically delegated to the United States federal government automatically revert to the states, and so forth and so on. In Marbury versus Madison in 1804, the power of judicial review was first recognized. And that is where the court, through its own action, gave itself its most powerful tool. It empowered itself in Marbury versus Madison. Now, I'm not going to get into the minutia of Marbury versus Madison. It had to do with uh, commissions not being delivered by Jefferson because of a dispute arriving between John Adams, the outgoing president, and um, Jefferson, the incoming president, where Adams in the closing days of his administration wanted to 
add federal magistrates and judges and gave them commissions, and the commissions weren't delivered in time. And since they weren't delivered before Jefferson's inauguration, he ordered uh, uh, Madison, his secretary of state, not to deliver them. Uh, We don't need to get into that. But the most important thing to come out of that case was that the court recognized or declared this inherent power of judicial review, meaning that the court could strike down laws or parts of laws that they felt were in conflict with the United States Constitution. And from that day, going forward, the Supreme Court has become an ever more powerful branch of government. In some cases, uh, people can consider it almost as powerful as the executive or the congressional branch. You can't really say it is as powerful because they can only act when asked a question. If they're not consulted and cases don't work their way up to them, they can't proactively do anything. They can only reactively do something, but sometimes their reaction is very powerful, as it was last week. Last week was a terrible day for poor old sleepy Joe Biden and his administration because they got their clocks cleaned in three very, very significant decisions by the United States Supreme Court. And in another decision uh, where the um, uh, a lower federal court acted against them. So let's go through these decisions. One of the biggest decisions, because it struck down decades of uh, quotas and preferential treatment, was the Supreme Court's striking down of race-based admissions in colleges. And Chief John Roberts, who for a long time was always a spoiler because he was in a 5-4 court, and I think some of these justices revel in the fact that they can be a swing vote, and because it's 5-4, the people have to kowtow to them and try and court their fancy so that they'll vote the way they want them to vote because they know they can make a decision go either way. But when it's a 6-3 majority, either 6-3 liberal or 6-3 conservative, in this case it's 6-3 conservative court, uh, people can't be as cavalier about these things because they know that uh, if they decide to be cute— and not vote, like for instance, if John Roberts had decided not to vote with the majority, because the decision in this case was 6-3, he would have been on the wrong side of a 5-4 decision. And nobody wants to be in the minority unless they're a real ideologue. They want to be on the winning side. It's natural. But this 6-3 decision now ends affirmative action in higher education. Now, this particular uh, piece of... uh, judicial workmanship, uh, was done in response to a case that was brought, I think the petitioners were um, Harvard, they weren't the petitioners, but the, the, um, the, um, the people who were petitioned against were Harvard and I believe North Carolina University. It was two separate appeals heard together they were oral arguments were done on October 31st of last year, 2022. It was the Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College, and then the Students for Fair Admissions versus the U- University of North Carolina. And since the issues were the same, they were all both heard on the same day. Now, Roberts wrote the opinion for the majority, and in that decision, he was joined 
not surprisingly, but all of the other justices in the majority. Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Samuel Alito, and Amy Coney Barrett. The three liberal justices, not surprising, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, all dissented. Uh, Now, I'm sure that Sotomayor uh, probably was the beneficiary of affirmative action at some point in her life, as was Ketanji Brown-Jackson. But it doesn't change the fact. In fact, you might be able to say that since they were the beneficiaries of affirmative action, that they should have recused themselves from the decision. But it really was a moot point here. Uh, They get to write an opinion and stomp their feet and write a dissenting opinion, which has no power. But uh, it didn't change anything because of the 6-3 majority. Uh, The votes in the Harvard case were the same, except that um, Jackson didn't participate in that case, I think, Uh, because it says here she recused herself because she has close ties to Harvard. Now, Kagan didn't recuse herself. You see, this is the thing. These liberals, they're the big ones that demand everyone. They demanded that that, uh, Trump's attorney general, uh, the former senator from Georgia, he must recuse himself about Russia. He shouldn't get involved. Why doesn't Kagan have to recuse herself from this case involving Harvard Law School, even though she was the bloody dean of Harvard Law School from 2003 to 2009. She should have recused herself. So that case, the vote shouldn't have been 6-2, it should have been 6-1. She had no business hearing that case, which just goes to show you, if they had been in the majority, these people would would use that to try and control the decision. Now, the the, um, Students for Fair Admissions is a nonprofit group in excess of 20,000 students, parents, and others who are stakeholders who believe that racial classifications and preferences in college admissions are unfair, unnecessary, and unconstitutional. Now, the reason why they went after Harvard and the UNC, uh, they're respectively the oldest private college and the oldest public college in the United States. So I guess that's how it came to be. Now, the Harvard case first went to a district judge that was appointed by President Obama at the time. And they found, after a 15-day non-jury trial in favor of Harvard, uh, ruling that its admission policy that was said to discriminate against Asian American applicants wasn't motivated by racial animus or intentional description and was narrowly tailored to achieve diversity and the academic benefits that flow from diversity. First of all, Let me just strike this down. I don't believe there are necessarily academic benefits that flow from diversity. I think the benefits academically and the benefits on a societal basis flow from having the best people that are capable of doing a job do that job. And if we have a school that has a limited number of spaces available, I think the best way that school can serve society is by having if they use an arbitrary number, if they have an uh, incoming class that that can accept 2,000 people, I think the best 2,000 people should be admitted, regardless of their race. And I mean that sincerely, and I wouldn't care how it worked out. If the 2,000 best students happen to all be of minority extraction, so be it. I don't think someone should automatically get a seat at the table 
simply because they're of a certain race or gender. I think you give the best you can do. Your work speaks for itself, and they select based on who's the best. Now, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit upheld the lower court's decision. Now, in the Carolina case, it was a U.S. District Judge by the name of Loretta Copeland Biggs, also an appointee of President Obama. She had previously held an eight-day non-jury trial to determine if University of North Carolina was complying with existing precedent. The court approved the school's admission policy because it uses race flexibly as a plus factor and only as one among many factors. It found that UNC had no viable race-neutral alternatives to help it achieve the educational benefits of diversity about as well as its current race-conscious policies and practices. I still would like someone to tell me what these educational benefits of diversity are. I still would like Sotomayor to explain to me why she made those stupid statements when she was lecturing that, you know, um, I think we need this perspective because the this perspective that a wise Latina brings. Uh, what is this perspective of the wise Latina? So if you're a male white, you have no logical wise perspective, but if you're a wise Latina, you do. What's so different? Is it illogical? Is it wise? Or is it just a different perspective? That was the most vacuous, ridiculous comment I'd ever heard any candidate for a Supreme Court slot ever make. And she still never... Uh, adequately addressed it. Because I know that if a white male were a candidate for the U.S. Supreme Court and they were to make the statement, well, you really need the, um, the input and benefit of a wise white male, uh, I think people would go through the roof, uh, justifiably so. It's a ridiculous uh, comment. But she was able to make it. No problem. Nobody says anything. Now, the court stated that providing emissions preferences based on socioeconomic status instead of race wouldn't work because the majority of low-income students are white, so the schools would just be choosing more white students. So that's why that district court didn't go for the uh, income part of it. They went by race. Because apparently, see, a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of poor white people in this country. And so if they went by income... They would, they would get, still get more white people. I guess the identity was not to get white students. The identity was to get more minority students in order to make um, the uh, student body more diverse. Apparently, these schools did not differentiate between low-income or poor white students and high-income or rich white students. They just, the fact they were white, we couldn't have too many of them there. We have to have a diverse student population. Um, Race should be used by UNC indefinitely, the court said, because it's interwoven in every aspect of the lived experience. So this went on and on. Roberts wrote the majority opinion. He wrote that Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. This is a quote. Both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. We have never permitted admission programs to work in that way, and we will not do so today. Now, departing from the decision, 
uh, the article that I'm quoting here said that years earlier, then-Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman on the Supreme Court, had predicted the demise of affirmative action. She wrote in a decision known as Grutter versus Bollinger, we expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. She wrote that making race-conscious admission decisions is dangerous, calling it a deviation from the norm of equal treatment. Such programs must be, quote, limited in time, noting that all governmental use of race must have a logical endpoint. Now, Roberts also wrote that nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Quote, a benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination, or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, this is a direct quote, quote, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Now, Justice Thomas, perhaps the most conservative justice on the court, him and Alito, is probably a toss-up. He was only the second African-American justice on the Supreme Court up until uh, Judge Brown Jackson was just appointed. Um, He wrote a concurring opinion Even though he joined with the majority, he wrote a concurring opinion, 58 pages in length. The new ruling sees universities' admissions policies for what they are, rudderless race-based preferences designed to ensure a particular racial mix in their entering classes. So this was a major, major blow to the leftists, because they have been relying on preferential treatment um, for the longest time. But it's over now, at least in college admissions. Quick note, though, because these involved the private university of Harvard and the oldest public university of North Carolina, it is applicable to universities of that type. There were national defense issues and other issues uh, that might have come into play that weren't specifically addressed in this ruling. So Justice Roberts, in his majority opinion, did carve out a particular exception for America's military academies, who may still consider race in admissions. We're talking about the U.S. Army Military Academy, West Point. Uh, We're talking about the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, where people get commissions either to the Navy or the Marine Corps, and the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. I don't know how it would affect the Coast Guard Academy. I assume it's the same, even though it's not necessarily part of the United States military except in wartime. Uh, 
this was a monumental, monumental decision. But it was not the only decision of great import that the um, Supreme Court delivered last week. They delivered another one, one that had nothing to do with Equal Protections Clause, one had to do with free speech, the First Amendment. And the First Amendment is the First Amendment for a reason. Because of all the amendments in the Constitution, our founding fathers considered freedom of speech our most important right. And right behind it was the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, because they felt that the right to bear arms was needed to enforce the first right. And so, therefore, you have your one and two. So, this case revolved around an issue that um, became very popular a few years ago. People on the left trying to cripple people who opposed their agenda. Uh, You remember cases such as um, bakers who were being compelled when they refused to bake wedding cakes, for instance, for same-sex marriages because they claim it infringed on their constitutional rights. Uh, because they didn't believe in it. It was against their religious beliefs, and they tried to protest these bakeries and these um, various businesses which would serve people and not uh, serve uh, same-sex couples and tried to cripple their businesses and expose them to public ridicule and so forth and so on. Uh, This happened in Colorado. Uh, A Supreme Court, again, a 6-3 ruling, ruled in favor of a Christian web designer, and the claim of this web designer said that Colorado's law requiring her to create websites to celebrate same-sex weddings infringed on her constitutional rights. And it is an excellent article here that covers this. Now, Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion in this case, and the opinion was joined by Chief Justice Roberts and, of course, Justice Clarence Thomas, Justice Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. The three liberal justices, not surprisingly, dissented. The name of the case is Creative LLC versus Alenis. It was also decided June 30th. Now, I've told you they've been looking at these people for years, bakers refusing to make cakes and so forth and so on. Now, Back in a case known as the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission in 2018, uh, the Supreme Court sided with a Christian baker by the name of Jack Phillips. Uh, A gay couple had asked him to create a custom cake to celebrate their gay marriage, finding a state human rights commission had violated his First Amendment right to exercise freedom of religion. So the court sided with Jack Phillips because when the Um, State Human Rights Commission compelled him or tried to compel him to bake this cake that they had uh, violated his rights, okay? Now, in this case, though, with the, uh, the web designer, a woman by the name of Lori Smith complained that she was being singled out by the same Human Rights Commission in Colorado because of her religious faith and that she does not support non-traditional marriage. Uh, Now, she has said she will design custom websites for anyone, including those who identify as LGBT. So she will identify custom websites for gay people, for lesbian people, and for transgender people, as long as their message 
does not conflict with her religious views. That means that she's not going to do any website designing that promotes any messages that condone uh, violence or uh, immoral sexual conduct or abortion or same-sex marriage, all of which conflict with her religious views. She said when clients want such messages expressed, she refers them to other website designers. She took action when she discovered that she was forbidden under the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act to post a statement online explaining what content she was and was not willing to create. Her attorneys, uh, actually her attorney, Kristen Wagoner of the Alliance Defending Freedom, argued before the court December 5th that Smith blends art with technology to create custom messages using words and graphics. She serves all people, deciding what to create based on the message, not who requests it. But Colorado declares her speech a public accommodation and insists that she create and speak messages that violate her conscience. If the government may not force motorists to display a motto, if the government may not force school children to say a pledge, if the government may not force parades to include banners, then Colorado may not force Ms. Smith to create and speak messages on pain of investigation, fine, and re-education. So Gorsuch wrote in the holding here, Like many states, Colorado has a law forbidding businesses from engaging in discrimination when they sell goods and services to the public. Laws along these lines have done much to secure civil rights for all Americans. But in this particular case, Colorado does not just seek to ensure the sale of goods or services on equal terms. It seeks to use its law to compel an individual to create speech she does not believe. The question we face is whether that course violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. In this case, Colorado seeks to force an individual to speak in ways that align with its views but defy her conscience about a matter of major significance. The First Amendment envisions the United States as a rich and complex place where all persons are free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. Nor in any event do the First Amendment's protections belong only to speakers whose motives the government finds worthy. Its protections belong to all, including to speakers whose motives others may find misinformed or offensive. So, in this decision handed down by Gorsuch, to which, in which the other conservative justices joined, it reversed a ruling of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Not surprisingly, Sotomayor wrote a 38-page dissenting opinion, which was joined by Kagan and Brown-Jackson. So, I think that was rightly decided, and I think it was a decision that was long overdue. People have a right to do what they want to do. Um, I mean, as long as they have a religious objection. People have the right to free speech. You, can't, you shouldn't be able to hold a gun to my head and force me to do something I don't believe in if it's against my religious uh, convictions. Okay? If it's something that's other areas of discrimination based on race and so forth, it's a little bit different. It's not religious. This is based on a religious belief, a deeply held religious belief. So that makes two cases 
that Joe Biden got smacked on uh, pretty hard. But these I wanted to highlight first because they involved long-standing traditions, uh, long-standing societal beliefs that racial quotas are good and uh, uh, you can't you can't deny anybody anything. Your your religious beliefs don't matter. It's what the people that want your services believe in, and so forth and so on. So these were big, big cases. But there is another case that I wanted to hit on, and that was really a patronizing, contemptible move by Joe Biden to try and salvage the 2022 midterms. If you recall last year. In August 2022, uh, Sleepy Joe announced that he was going to try to forgive all student loans or partially forgive a lot of student loans in the hopes that these young people who are already wedded to voting Democrat and liberal uh, would vote liberal or Democratic in even greater numbers. And I'm sure many of them did on the strength of this promise and try and help Biden get elected. Now, the Congressional Budget Office back at the time said that this plan of Joe Biden would cost the American taxpayer, many of whom have had student loans like myself and paid them back, uh, about $400 billion. But the Wharton School of Business, which is a very, very uh, well-respected school of business, uh, estimated the price would be in excess of a trillion dollars. That's a lot of scratch to ask taxpayers to come up with. Uh, This program, which has now been invalidated by this ruling, would have canceled as much as $20,000 in loan principal for each of the 40 million borrowers it affected. Now, Biden, of course, is complaining, denounced the ruling. Uh, There are millions of Americans in this country who feel disappointed and discouraged or even been angry about the decision today on student debt. 16 million people have been approved for student debt relief, and the money was literally about to go out the door. And then the Republican elected officials and special special interests stepped in. They said, no, no, literally snatching from the hands of millions of Americans thousands of dollars in student debt relief that was about to change their lives. Now, let me ask you this question. Why is this changing people's lives? And why are they trying to paint this as something that was people were actually entitled to? People weren't entitled to this. This was something that he invented. In fact, so much so, if you've ever borrowed money and you've fallen on hard times, and I'm not just talking about any money, I'm talking about student loan money. Did you know that when these loans were granted, and we're going to get into that too, part of the reason we have this problem is the way these loans are granted and who they're granted to. Do you know that you cannot discharge these loans in bankruptcy? A lot of people don't know that. People say, oh, if I get in debt, I'll go bankrupt. You can go bankrupt all you want. You can have a federal judge declare you bankrupt, and he can wipe out your credit card debt. He can wipe out mortgage. He can wipe out everything medical debt, you name it. But he can't wipe out student loans. They're immune from the bankruptcy law. You borrowed it, you got to pay it back. And there's a reason for that, and I don't disagree with that. And one of the reasons is that you cannot be denied a student loan. See, unlike borrowing money for a home, 
where you have to prove an ability to pay it back. No one ever asks you to prove an ability that you can pay your student loan back. It's, it's almost been treated as a right, that you have a right to borrow almost any amount of money you want for educational purposes to p- pursue any educational uh, path that you elect to choose, even if it's not one that holds the promise of great financial success in the future in your life to pay back the money you borrowed. Now, that's a stupid decision on your part if you borrow money that you have no way of paying back, but that's a decision that you made, and you can't expect other people to bail you out of it. But yet, that's exactly what we have. I want to cut to this coverage here on ABC. I'll take this one particular girl here. Um, Whitney Jean Alum, a 27-year-old educator in Chicago dreamed of buying a house sooner with the room in her budget from President Joe Biden's student loans cancellation plan. It would have cut in half the 40000 she owes on loans taken out for college and a master's degree. On Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court struck the plan down. Quote, literally this morning, I felt like, damn, I just lost $20,000. Borrowers around the country, the ruling brought bitterness and frustration. The student loan forgiveness program would have eliminated 10000 in debt for those making less than 125000 and households earning less than 250000 were also eligible. Pell Grant recipients would have had additional 10000 in relief. Brittany Bell Surratt of Washington, D.C. said she wasn't surprised at the ruling, but said the news left her disheartened at the future for black Americans like herself, especially coming a day after the court ruled against affirmative action in higher education. We have been systematically discriminated against in so many ways, and this goes hand in hand with the affirmative action decision, she said. There's a choice, and it's intentional and deliberate and conscious. Barat 37 said she was not making payments while student loans were frozen during the pandemic, because she was saving up for her 17-year-old son who plans to attend college next year. Her student loans told $47,000 originally, but she currently owes over $65,000 with interest. With payments to resume October 1st, she expects to pay about $800 a month. That's a mortgage in a lot of places. Well, let me just tell you something, Ms. Surratt. I don't doubt that there's been systematic discrimination in America, and I can see why a person in your position might feel that the decision of the court in the affirmative action case might be a continuation of discrimination. I disagree with your reasoning in that, but I can understand why you might think that. But this denial of an illegal forgiveness plan for student loans is not an intentional, deliberate, and conscious uh, act of discrimination. You knew exactly the deal you were making when you borrowed the money, and you know you have to pay it back. And I think it's a lot of chutzpah on the part of all these people, not just Brittany Bell Surratt, but uh, the first woman I mentioned, Whitney Jean Alum, who's not African-American. I think you're asking an awful lot for people who borrowed money, paid back their own student loans, to now, through their tax dollars, pay yours back. When you're the one that borrowed it, and you're the one that chose the educational path. And this is part of the problem in this country, is that we treat these student loans like absolute rights. Look, I think everyone has a right to an education, okay? And I think you should be able to afford to pay for it. 
And if you need loans to do it, you should be able to get those loans. But like with every loan, I think, I think that you should be able to have a plan to pay that loan back. So I think people that need a car should be able to buy a car. If they need a car to go to and from work, because in the area in which they live, public transportation is available. I do not support that people who need to buy a car uh, have a right or are entitled to drive a Mercedes-Benz when a Toyota would get them there just as efficiently and safely. So I think the way we have to get around this is we've created a terrible cult here. We created a terrible debt crisis. It's the next bubble that's coming where people are borrowing, borrowing exorbitant amounts of money for education simply because they can. They cannot be denied this money. The institutions of higher learning in this country know they can't be denied. So therefore, they have no reason to keep a lid on tuition prices escalating. They know they can pay these professors whatever they want and choose with, uh, to charge whatever they want in tuition because the student is not going to be denied. That whole structure has to be changed. What we need to do is people who come to lending institutions to borrow money for education have to be able to demonstrate how the education that they're pursuing is going to result in gainful employment that will allow them to repay back this money. Now, I, I tell a story uh, that I read during the Occupy Wall Street. That was the days before everybody was concerned about COVID. And I've, I think I've told it before on this show about a teacher. This gentleman was an art teacher in a New York City public school. Now, New York City public school teachers are not exactly underpaid. They're paid very, very, very well. And why I know that there's always a need for art and artistic expression, I don't consider it one of the more difficult things that people probably have to teach, but that's another story. Uh, they're working, they deserve to get paid. Well, apparently this particular art teacher became disenchanted with his job, feeling that he was overworked and uh, too many students, this and that, left school. I mean, left uh, teaching at the school, rather, and went back to school to pursue a master's degree because he thought that the master's degree would make him more marketable and he'd be able to get a better job for more pay and less work. The dream of everyone, correct? So he goes and borrows, I think, $35,000 to pay for this master's degree. Now, a single man making the kind of money that um, they pay teachers in the city of New York, I'm surprised he couldn't float it himself, that he had to actually borrow it. But borrow it, he did. And he got his master's degree, and he was shocked when after getting it, he wasn't able to find employment, not just employment that was as good as what he had or better than what he had, not even employment that was nearly as good as what he had. And he was shocked by this. Then I read a little further in the article that I was reading these few years ago, and I almost fell off my chair when I read what this fool went back to school to get a master's degree in. Now, I don't know what's more disconcerting. The fact that someone would actually consider paying $35,000 to get a master's degree in this subject, or that a respected institution of higher education in this country offers such a degree. This feather-blained nut 
went back to school and spent $35,000, borrowed $35,000 to get a master's degree in puppeteering. No, I kid you not. You heard it right. Puppeteering. Now, I never would even think that puppeteering is something you would go to college to learn. It seems something you might pick up along the way on weekends or perhaps as a apprentice working in the now defunct Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, but it's certainly not something I would think you'd have to go to college to learn, let alone have to pay $35,000 to learn. So having been um, disenchanted, he goes back to his old principal and wants his old job back. The principal says, love to have you back, but budget constraints and other problems, Cuts that have taken place since you left. I can't take you back full-time. I can only take you back part-time. You have to work at 50% of your old salary, and you don't get full medical benefits. Best I can do. And he's now frustrated and swore that this was the people on Wall Street's fault. I don't know how he came to that conclusion, but that's what he concluded. In a similar way, these people are concluding and trying to assign conspiratorial conduct on the part of conservatives and the court in knocking down a forgiveness of debt that they voluntarily incurred and made a covenant with the lenders to pay back. It wasn't like, you can pay us back if you feel like it, Uh, you can pay us back when you get around to it, hey, you don't have to pay us back at all, or look, don't worry about borrow it now, down the road, they'll probably forgive it. No, no. The covenant didn't say any of that. You borrowed it, you borrowed it at a specified rate of interest, and you're obliged to pay it back. And you knew going forward you couldn't get that thing forgiven, even in bankruptcy. And the President of the United States should not be able, by the stroke of a pen and executive fiat, to be able to dismantle this sort of debt repayment thing, which is 100% lawful, and would be disrespectful and injurious to the rest of us to have to pay back money through our tax dollars that other people borrowed when we all paid back our own money. So I am more than pleased and ecstatic that the court found that you cannot forgive this money. Okay, and I think it was the appropriate decision to make. Now, this particular case, um, it's more important that we discussed uh, the debate and the social ramifications of it than getting into the legal minutiae. But just to give you a little bit of insight into their thinking, there's a lot of cases that worked their way up through the court that dealt with this plan as early as February. But they were all using the HEROES Act. Uh, Just to give you an example of what they wrote, in Biden versus Nebraska, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the court's majority opinion. It was joined by Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. He said, last year, the Secretary of Education established the first comprehensive student loan forgiveness program, invoking the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act, the HEROES Act, as it's known, for authority to do so. The Secretary's plan canceled roughly $430 billion of federal student loan balances, completely erasing the debts of 20 million borrowers and lowering the median amount owed by the other 23 million from 29400 to 13600 Six states sued, arguing that the HEROES Act does not authorize the loan cancellation plan, and we agree. The Secretary's plan has modified the cited provisions 
modified in quotations, only in the same sense that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility. It has abolished them and supplanted them with a new regime entirely from a few narrowly delineated situations specified by Congress. The secretary has expanded forgiveness to nearly every borrower in the country. The economic and political significance of the action by the secretary who, quote, claims the authority to exercise control over a significant portion of the American economy is staggering by any measure. Practically every student borrower benefits regardless of circumstances. And that's one of the reasons why they struck it down. Uh, and, and rightfully so. Uh, this was politically motivated and an economically disastrous decision, and just simply not morally sustainable. People who borrow money, knowing full well that they must pay it back, should be made to pay it back. And that's it. Very simple. Now, there are other cases that we have to discuss. One of them involves not a decision on the case specifically itself, but rather a decision not to hear a case. And I think that was an incorrect Decision. It involves a case called Kincaid versus Williams. Now, two justices on the court objected to the Supreme Court not at least deciding to take up the case. They didn't say it had to decide in a certain way, but it should have been taken up. And that was, I believe, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. Alito wrote the dissent and Thomas joined. And it surrounds uh, gender dysphoria which is a term we've been hearing a lot about lately. Now, Alito objected, as I said, to the court not hearing the case, and his dissent from the denial of the petition, he wrote that the nation's highest court should have accepted the case to resolve an issue of, quote, great national importance that calls out for prompt review. And Thomas joined this set, uh, this dissent. This all emanated out of a case uh, in the Fourth Circuit in Virginia. The Fourth Circuit is usually considered a very, very conservative circuit in years past. I guess the makeup of that circuit has changed. And they ruled in favor of one Keisha Williams, who's a former detainee in the Fairfax County, Virginia jail, a person born male and now identifies as female. The lawsuit that he, she, what has is still ongoing against the county. Um, uh, Williams suffers from gender dysphoria, which is defined as discomfort or distress experienced by a person whose sex at birth is at odds with their so-called gender identity. You know, this is one of the reasons why I think Alito wanted this case heard. You know, people, I, I've explained this before, that in a large part, this is a disorder. It's a mental disorder. Uh, and the American psychological community, in large part, knows it's a mental disorder. Now, if people want, with this mental disorder want to believe that they are what they are, even though they aren't, that's fine. It's their right to believe as they wish. But you can't compel me to believe it and address you and treat you in such a manner that feeds into your uh, mental disorder. If you want to believe you're a woman... That's fine, but don't expect me to have to call you Mrs. X when I know you're Mr. X. It's just insane, okay? Um, now, 
Williams claims that he was mistreated and discriminated against while he was in the custody of the county, which did not abide by his wish to have his female identity recognized. Back in 2020, the Supreme Court embraced this concept of gender identity, um, but identity identity disorder is something else. goes back to 2018 when he was incarcerated for six months by Fairfax County in facilities overseen by um, Sheriff Kincaid, and that's the named respondent in the um, in the legislation in the uh, litigation rather. Now Williams said he'd been taking hormone treatments fifteen years, but he hadn't had the surgery. Why not? After fifteen years, you haven't made a decision. If you're really identified as a woman, why are you living in a half world? Go all the way. Uh, so he didn't have the surgery, so they claimed his prescription hormone medication was taken away. He was transferred to men's housing. Staffers refused to go along with his wishes of being a woman. Claimed his medical treatment was delayed, that he was harassed by inmates and guards, that he requested to be sh- to shower in private, and that was denied. And he requested that body searches be performed by female deputies, denied. Well, I got news for you. Body searches are sometimes performed on men by female deputies. Should they be de- requesting that that not be the case? I mean, you know, you can't have it both ways. So the court, uh, Circuit Court Judge Marvin Quattlebaum, who was actually a Trump appointee, um, he dissented from the order of the Fourth Circuit uh, because the appeals court said that the statute... um, The Fourth Circuit... I'll go back. I'm getting ahead of myself. Fourth Circuit found that the definition of gender identity disorder in use when the American with Disabilities Act was enacted uh, has since been removed from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the book that the American Psychiatry Association uses. The appeals court held that the statute should be interpreted to cover gender dysphoria in order to avoid a serious constitutional question. Um, That would arise if the law were read to discriminate against transgender people as a class implicating the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, I disagree with that. These people have a mental disease. Judge Quattlebaum wrote in his dissent that gender dysphoria was covered under the phrase gender identity disorders in the act. To hold otherwise would give groups such as the American Psychiatric Association the power to effectively modify statutes passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. That cannot be right. In his dissent, Alito, uh, this is a different dissent now, this is Alito dissenting in the denial of the writ of certiorari to hear the case. He found several aspects of the lower court's reasoning troubling. He says, the case raises a host of important and sensitive questions regarding such matters as participation in women's and girls' sports, access to single-sex restrooms and housing, the use of traditional pronouns, and the administration of sex reassignment therapy both the performance of surgery and the administration of hormones by physicians and at hospitals that object to such treatments on religious or moral grounds. Without full briefing and argument, I would not take a firm view on the improper interpretation of the American with Disabilities Act, let alone on the merits of Williams' particular case, but several aspects of the Fourth Circuit reasoning are troubling. For example, the circuit court's narrow focus on the phrase gender dysphoria 
does not engage with the broad brush used by Congress, which barred application of the American with Disabilities Act, not only to transsexualism and gender identity disorders not resulting from physical impairments, but also to other sexual behavior disorders. Now, I think Alito is right in his judgment, and uh, it's Eventually, the court is going to have to come to grapple with this issue. They, they can't continue to sweep it under the rug. Uh, the, the attorney for Williams said that Alito's dissent understates the seriousness of gender dysphoria and the importance of ensuring the protections of the ADA apply equally to everyone regardless of their gender, gender identity. No, I disagree with that because people who have a mental disease uh, don't have a disability in the normal uh, uh, term uh, in which that uh, particular disability is understood. These people have a mental disorder, and we can't start ensuring equal protections under the law because, uh, because people have a mental disorder. People who have a mental disorder have to, be, have to be treated for that disorder. We don't want to play in to that disorder. So it would be interesting to continue to watch uh, this case unfold. In fact, it's interesting to note that in another case, there was a ruling against the uh, Biden administration. I have it here. Uh, White House declines to appeal Supreme Court on transgender surgery mandate. It says the White House won't seek a U.S. Supreme Court intervention for its requirement that healthcare organizations and hospitals perform and cover transgender medical procedures after it missed its deadline to file an appeal. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty Legal Group said in a statement that the Biden administration missed the June 20th deadline to appeal its case to the U.S. Supreme Court after multiple courts blocked the administration's mandate. Both the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals and the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals blocked the mandate from going through in recent years. After multiple defeats in court, quote, the federal government has thrown in the towel on its controversially medically unsupported transgender uh, mandate. So says Luke Goodrich, vice president and senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. I think that's very telling. I think it's probably an indication that at some level, these left-wing lunatics realize they're pushing the American people too far and uh, they're not going to continue that push right now. They're going to hope for better times. Now, the last case that I wanted to look at today was not a Supreme Court case, but it gives you an indication of just how important it is to have presidents elected to this country who will appoint appropriate federal justices who will understand the letter of the law, read the law, and not try and interpret the law or legislate from the bench. And I've also told you on an unrelated matter that the way liberals in the left have foisted their ideology upon the masses in this country is through the creation of federal bureaucracies. What happens is the elected representatives create these bureaucracies and then they empower them uh, under the acts that create them. And they have the power to regulate uh, these areas of people's lives that the legislature has empowered them to regulate, such as the Environmental Protection Agency and so forth and so on. And these regulations have the force of law. They're not passed by Congress. 
They are not passed with the consent of the governed. They are simply foisted upon us, and they're almost beyond uh, the ability of the people to fight unless you go through lengthy court battles. Now, one such fanatical agency is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and they've gotten more fanatical as years gone by. Well, a federal judge, I believe in Texas, let me see, well, we'll get to it in a minute, really delivered a telling blow against the Biden administration's gun control policy by reversing a federal ban on ghost guns and argued that the ATF overstepped its authority. And wait do you listen to this. This is going to make you understand just how crazy uh, government by bureaucratic regulation is. And it was, in fact, a Texas-based district court judge by the name of Reed O'Connor. He ruled on Friday that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives erred by saying that unfinished gun parts are guns and can therefore be regulated. His ruling said that parts aren't guns under federal law. Quote, this case presents the question of whether the federal government may lawfully regulate partially manufactured firearms components, related firearm products, and other tools and materials in keeping with the Gun Control Act of 1968. Because the court concludes that the government cannot regulate those items without violating federal law, the court holds that the government's recently enacted final rule, its unlawful agency action taken in excess of ATF statutory jurisdiction. Read that again. Because the court concludes that the government cannot regulate those items without violating federal law, the court holds that the government's recently enacted final rule is unlawful agency action taken in excess of the ATF statutory jurisdiction. On this basis, the court vacates the final rule. You also said that the ATF almost shot themselves in the foot, no pun intended, talking about a gun case. He said that the ATF, in trying to regulate a gun component as a frame or a receiver, because they're trying to regulate it as a frame or a receiver, even after the agency determined that the component in question is not a frame or a receiver. So he wrote, it may not. Logic dictates that a part cannot both not yet a receiver and a receiver be at the same time. Defendants' reliance on that logical contradiction is fatal to their argument. So pro-firearm groups actually were very, very happy. We're thrilled to see the court agree the ATF's frame or receiver rule exceeds agencies' congressional uh, limited authority. And I hope that we see more rulings like this from the district courts and the uh, uh, circuit courts and ultimately at the Supreme Court level because if we really want to get our country back, we have to dismantle this unbelievably oppressive bureaucratic structure that the left has created through the creation of these agencies, the Department of Energy, the Department of Environmental uh, Protection, all of these agencies. People go out and they buy land in beautiful parts of the country and wilderness areas like Wyoming and the Dakotas, and they want to build a home, their retirement home, their getaway home, and then they're told that some yellow-bellied sapsucker or 
uh, bull-throated frog has his habitat there. It's going to be endangered or destroyed, and the species may become extinct if they build there. So therefore, we can't do this. This is insanity, and an end has to be brought to it, and a quick end. So we applaud this ruling. We applaud the ruling of the Supreme Court on the two cases we discussed. We applaud this ruling against the Biden administration's ATF and against Joe Biden's ridiculous attempt to try and forgive debt on the part of people who knew what they were getting into when they borrow it and wish to foist that debt on the rest of us. I think the rest of us are already laboring under enough debt that's being foisted upon us by the federal government and in the case of myself here by the state of New York with some of the taxes they are looking to do. So enjoy your 4th of July weekend. Celebrate Independence Day today as a rolling back of some of the attempts at suppression of your freedoms that the Founding Fathers wanted for you when they created the Constitution, when they signed the Declaration of Independence. So these rulings coming just a few days prior to the 4th of July are very, very timely. So remember your Founding Fathers and the freedoms they gave for you and the lives that they put at risk in order to secure it for you, and every generation of Americans who has fought since then. Remember, we have a gay pride month in this country where we acknowledge people's sexual preferences, but we only devote one day to remembering the veterans who died to keep us free on Memorial Day. So on this 4th of July, remember our founding fathers and all they put at risk and all they sacrificed to give birth to this, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.